Hi everyone, and welcome to a very special, slightly different episode of Angle on Producers, the show where I talk to other producers to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do what they do. Week after week, we dig into the messy realities of what it's like to do this work. But this week, the angle gets put on me. See what I did there? <laughs> the gents from the Just Shoot It podcast, Matt Enlow and Orrin Kaplan, invited me on their show to talk about producing. When I was flirting with the idea of creating my own podcast, theirs is actually one that I listened to quite often and really loved the conversations that they were having with other directors, filmmakers. They have been doing this for over six years. So it's truly an honor to get invited on their show to talk a little bit about my journey producing and really what I've learned in almost two years of having my own podcast. Regardless of what lane you're in, what interests you may have, the more information you know, the better you will be at the thing you're here to do. So definitely check them out. And if you don't already, please subscribe to this show. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. With all that said, thank you for doing this life thing with me. And um, here's me, I guess. <laughs> Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to the 259th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Katie Harbin, Kyle Hammond, and Ant Fallon. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we've got Carolina Gropa on the show. She's a producer in her own right, but she also has a podcast called Angle on Producers, where she takes deep dives into the art and craft of producing. It's kind of like Just Shoot It, but about producing. She has a ton of really exciting, really interesting guests on. And she has garnered a ton of insight, a ton of uh, learnings from all of those conversations. You know, we thought we'd all hop on the horn together to, to trade stories and learn a little bit more about what it is to be a producer and vice versa. Yeah, producing is just hard. I was thinking today about how like a producer with a job is like one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. And a producer without a job is like one of the least powerful people in Hollywood. <laughs> Because, you know, we talk about producers a lot and we're like, should we say this? Should we? We always want to please them because they are the ones that hire directors. Us. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think that as we learn in the conversation with Carolina, there's that hierarchy where they're on that hustle. They're on that grind as well. And so the same sort of anxiety that we have as freelancers, they have additionally it's just that their jobs last just a tiny bit longer than ours do but it's the same issues of like are you good to work with quote unquote are you easy are you a good collaborator all of those things which are kind of coded terms for like do we like this person or not and what are we bringing to the table that could be in conflict is a really anxiety inducing thing because especially as a producer you know you have to say no a lot of times and that can be a there's built-in friction. That's the point, right? Otherwise, all directors would produce as well. So that that friction sometimes can be intimidating because it means that you have to be the bad guy sometimes. And that can be a bummer when you're also trying to work with people in the future. So we dig in a little bit with that. And it's a really wonderful conversation. Caroline has got, like I said, a ton of insight. And I think that a lot of the people listening to our show will really like getting a better understanding of what it is to produce and also perhaps maybe have more insight on how to get hired by said producers. Yeah. What's your thought on how to meet producers? Because I was talking to my wife the other day about, 
you know, how I get jobs. And she was saying, you know, you have all these producers that love you that always try to want to put you up for jobs. And so that kind of made me realize like that is one of the important gateways to work (laughs) as a director, right? Is, and I think it's the same for features and film and TV and commercials. You know, we've had Natalie Metzger on and she talked about how she saw Josh Rubin's film. And so she thought of him when she had this opportunity to pitch a director on a, another film. You know, in commercials, it's always if you're on a producer's mind and they think you're good at a certain thing and that certain thing comes up for them, they will pitch you. But how do you go about like meeting more producers so that you have opportunities and Kara, my wife, was asking me, she's like, why don't you reach out to more producers and see if they like want to, you know, represent you or offer you? And I said, well, it, it's this weird situation. They're not exactly like agents, but they are kind of like agents. But you don't just say, hey, will you will you get me work? You don't reach You're out to a producer signed by a director yeah. and say, please yeah. hire me. But you kind of have to do this thing of like, hey, I made some things. Check them out. What do you think? Without being that person that says like, hey, well, look at my work and tell me what you think. Yeah. So I'll outline the way that I have gotten to know most, if not all of the producers that I work with closely. With the exception of my my Squaresville producer, actually, I met through like a job listing. Like we were like looking for a producer actively. Like a Craigslist or Mandy.com type of thing? Close, though more insular. It was the USC Ugh, women, women and women in film group. Yeah. Okay. So well, it was like, cool. which also my, like that list at the time, especially was like most of our crew came from that. It was like, a, it was a really wonderful uh, group that was really awesome in terms of like creating some introductions for people. And so like, you know, I imagine that there's probably the equivalent for most universities out there. So yeah, just that, that is a different conversation type or type of relationship than what we're talking about, right? Because that was yes. you getting her me job hiring someone else. Yeah, totally. As opposed to her getting you a job. So the way that most of the time, and I think this is probably true for you, Oren, is that I will get hired by a company. They'll assign a producer to that project. I will work with that producer. It will go wonderfully. Maybe we'll work on a couple other jobs. And then that producer will head over to a different company. You know, they kind of float around. That company will be like, hey, we're putting together a list of directors. Do you know anyone you'd recommend for this? They would put my name on the list. I would do a job with that company. And then maybe that producer would move elsewhere and I would get match made with a different producer. And that's basically how that trickle effect is how I basically know all of the producers that I know. And I'm good about like catching up with them, getting coffee with them. I am good to work with. I love producers. And so that has made it a little easier. But it's either that or a slightly different version where it's like I meet them socially, but they have heard of me because we have a small enough social circle that like, you know, everybody sort of knows everyone a little bit, you know. And this is particular to, I think, sketch comedy, you know, a few years ago, basically. And obviously, you know, pandemics aside it, being in LA that's part of the that, that's the networking part of it all that's right? the point yeah yeah totally Th- though there is a, a large amount of it that is happening online now you know you put really cool things on Facebook or Instagram and some producer sees it and is like hey you know I, I need someone there's a producer at Viacom that I work with that she like literally will find people on Instagram she'll be like I, I love this person's work let's hire them on our next project 
like literally without knowing them at all, that way of getting work is really hard because <laughs> you just have to be so exceptional and unique and original and have a wide reach on your social media for those people that don't necessarily have that. And it is different. It's like a combination of people liking your work and sending it to producers and you just somehow showing it to producers yourself. But it is like a kind of tricky gatekeeper type of position um, that, like you said, once you break into a few times and your experience goes well, it helps expand things. But, but a lot of times the experience, it's like the experience goes well, but the final product isn't great or, you know, I, I mean, I, there have been a lot of producers that I have worked with only a handful of times or once, especially out of town. That it, at the end, it's like, yeah, we'll work together again for sure. Can't wait to hire to, to do the next thing and then <laughs> never work together yeah. again. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why it's like so important to nail that first job. You know, I was really lucky on a, a few of my early college humor jobs. I don't want to say from the, by the luck of the draw, but they just they just clicked. And so I became the person that they hired all the time. And I have had the opposite happen where like. I was really stoked and, you know, just for whatever reason went south. And then that was the only job I ever did with them. Yeah. And then the other super common thing that happens is you get hired on like three jobs and then they're like, let's try someone new for the fourth job, <laughs> you know, but that's why it's such a long game because maybe they'll come back to you for the seventh and eighth job. You know? Right, right. And why we have to work so hard to make sure that the work that we're doing is awesome so that people are excited when they see it on their Instagram feed or they're impressed when the reel is submitted on the job and why, you know, we're so committed to quality because that's the way that you upgrade basically. Yeah. And it's also important to note that it's valuable when you do get a job to not just have a good relationship with a producer, but everyone on set i got a job remember i did those la tourism la san francisco tourism jobs mm -hmm. yeah, a couple yeah. Years Maybe, ago? yeah two years ago now probably yeah it's a really great fun job and i got it because a pa on a shoot i had five years previous was the coordinator on this job and they were looking for directors that could do comedy and improv and stuff so he's like i worked with this guy a while ago maybe i'll just reach out to him and when he reached out to me like I, I doubt he listens to this podcast, but if he does, I'm sorry. But I like honestly had zero clue who he was. But yeah, and then I've had a DP recommend me. It's rare, but sometimes they're like, oh, I just worked with this producer. That's really great. I mean, it's also something where it's like as soon as someone becomes part of the trusted network, that they're just collaborating with people regularly, they just are like, you know, like, ah, oh, we, we want to change it up. We're looking for comedy people. Oh, I worked with Orin once. That's it. That's how it works, basically, which can be frustrating because it, it is insular. But once you break in, things get a little bit easier. And I think to your point of like Instagram being a churn, but I think it points to the fact that the work has democratized a little bit more and that there are other avenues besides just bumping into someone at a barbecue, basically. Yeah, for sure. And then even if you are recommended to someone and you do have a small presence on Instagram or something and people are kind of trying to suss you out and figure out who you are and what you're about. I think that stuff does help actually. Well, cool. Well, so we'll, we'll get Carolina's opinion on all of this stuff. I'm excited. 
for you to hear us talk to her. But before that, I do want to remind people that we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash justshootitpod. It's a place where you can uh, support us a few bucks a month. It goes a long way to encourage us to keep doing this. $10 will get you a hat, a Just Shoot It hat. I, I just realized, Oren, we are coming up on our year anniversary. I think it's in mid-May. It'll be six years, I think, in May. Since we started the podcast? Since we started the podcast. Yeah. It's crazy. Since we invented podcasts. It's Yeah. Don't you think like you see other people and they have podcasts and you're like, we we did that so long before you did it. We were pioneers. Yeah. Well, back when I was at um, American Public Media and I founded This American Life, I was like, this isn't going to go anywhere. Yeah. You're like, America, how long is that yeah. going to last? Yeah. Yeah. It's still here today. So yeah, six years doing this. Is that not worth $1 a month? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Go to our Patreon. On. Don't go. I don't care. Okay. I don't need your favors. But, you know, if you do it, it makes me really happy. Okay, cool. Let's talk to Carolina. So, Carolina, you are a producer, and you have produced many things of all sorts. You had stuff at Sundance. You have something premiering at South by 2021, apparently. What? I don't even what? know. I do. That it, 2021 was a year that existed yet, <laughs> and you, uh, you've done documentary stuff. You've done narrative stuff. You've done episodic stuff. What are you? Can you tell us? What am I? That's a deep question. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I just really thrive. Do you have a, a business card? Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> Do you have a business card? Uh, I have a website, but I don't have like... And what does it yeah, say? Yeah, what does it say on your oh, website? Oh, my little... Well, my my, twi- my tagline is another immigrant coming up from the bottom, basically. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So, so not Which job is, spe- specific, though. Yeah, right? not job yeah, specific, because yeah. I think like yeah, what I do is just the hustle for this like independent producing lifestyle and stamina is is very much it's a it's a lifestyle and i guess i just said that but it really is you know it just it it takes a certain kind of person and i've definitely learned that now that i've been i've been in la 15 years almost and producing for a 10 of those years so i feel like i'm in it for the long haul and uh it's it's been cool actually that i've gotten to produce all kinds of different things and years ago um, I've had people tell me like, well, what kind of producer are you? Cause you do all this kind of stuff. Like what, pick a, pick a lane, you know? And what's happened that I think is great and works to my advantage is that now that everything is content, it's like, it just is what it is, you know, whether you're doing like a non-union commercial or a big union feature, like I think the approach to the work, at least for me, doesn't change. I treat everything with the same sense of integrity. I run all my sets like it is a union show, whether it is or it isn't, because I just want people to know that that's what I'm gonna bring to it no matter the scope of the project. And I think it's important to know how to like run the little sprints like of commercials, of branded stuff when you have $2 and to have like the stamina for the marathon of a, of a feature of a documentary, which is a different skill set. But I think you put all of these cool you know, things in your toolkit, in your tool belt, so that when these problems inevitably come up, whether in production or through ego or personalities, you can kind of lean on all of these, these experiences that you've had across the spectrum to go, oh, okay, like this is kind of like this and but a little different, you know, and it also allows you to like sort of hand select the people that you want to keep working with time and time again. Cause as you guys know, if you're on like a short project and you're dealing with someone who really sucks, you're like, okay, I just got to get through two days with this person, not like six months of this person. Um, and then you can really start rewarding the people who sort of are, you know, 
bringing all of themselves to the work and really show promise and not a lot of ego, especially as a producer with hiring power. I'm always looking, I'm always paying attention to how people present themselves on and off set, which to me should never be any different, you yeah. know? Yeah, without a doubt. I, you know, I, I think it's worth it to, to kind of take a look at maybe the different types of producers, right? Because Carolina, you were saying like people were asking you what what type of producer are you pick a lane and we haven't had a ton of producers on the show we work with them all the time obviously so we we drop sprinkle in anecdotes here and there but i think it's worth it just to kind of maybe mark through at least a couple of the different lanes that you had to pick from and maybe like what you like about the ones that you work in and which and maybe uh other insight about the ones that are, are less uh part of your world and, and just a quick aside before we get into that Sorry, is I I do think it's interesting. What makes you interesting about the producers we've had on is we've had a lot that like work for companies or like have production companies or studios and things. And you are like a, a you correct me if I'm wrong, but you're like a freelance producer. Yeah, it's just in the mm -hmm. way that Matt and I are you're freelance a pirate directors. like us. I'm a pirate. I'm a gypsy. Yeah. And, I'm <laughs> and when I went to your website, CarolinaGropa.com, it literally it says producer. You know, and then then I went to Matt's website. It says writer director. And I think for our listeners that are newer to the film industry, I think it's interesting because a lot of times you go to like a new filmmaker's website and it's like producer, director, writer, editor, VFX artist. And um, you see the the more people like figure out what they want to do, the less words there are. And so I think there's something like so strong about like going to carolinagropa.com and it's just producer, you know, and if you click on about, it's like Carolina is an Emmy nominated producer based in Los Angeles. And so even though you do all these other things and you have a podcast and you do um you know various various things that this is kind of the the thing you've picked and as a freelance producer specifically like when people are trying to figure out who you are and what if they want to work with you like you're just kind of putting it out there like this is who i am i'm a producer so with that said we can kind of break down the different types of producing jobs you do yeah yeah absolutely yeah i think the best way to break it down is first framing it through the lens of what i do how i got into it and my understanding of producing and so you know for me, a producer is somebody who is on the ground, has come up through physical production, has been in the trenches, who understands execution, whether that's a treatment, whether that's the creative for a commercial, a 30-second spot, or a 10-minute short, or a 120-page script. Like All of that is the same. You have your blueprint, and then you have to figure out how you're going to get from script to hard drive, basically, these days. And so when I got into producing, I just thought, well, you just do all of those things. Like you are the person who is creative and then finds the money and then figures out how to put it together, that figures out how to make the thing and how to edit the thing and how to release the thing and then how, who you show the thing to. Like the producer used to be one person, two people max. Like if you go back to the beginning roots of a producer, most creatives had one producer. They were soup to nuts. They did everything. And somewhere along the, the path and how our business has evolved, those jobs all became compartmentalized. So then you have one producer who just does development and creative. Then you have the producer who does just the physical and then they go away and you have a post supervisor who's essentially a producer who oversees post, you know, and so all of these, it's created a lot of jobs, but what it does is it kind of segments the process so that there are people who kind of specialize in one part of the process along the way. So typically and in a way they kind of 
have like removed ownership from these people yeah right sure yeah the post producer wants to do a good job on post but like doesn't care if you came in on budget or not on in production right for instance, exactly right? and sometimes you know if you're talking about a true independent film where you have just the two people who are ride or dies and have been with the project for 10 years it's their baby they've done all those things because they couldn't afford to hire someone to help them do those things or maybe they have some assistance but they st they still have to oversee it all and it's in their best interest to protect their investment their filmmaker etc but so i just kind of when i got in i just knew okay now looking back i didn't know that there were clear options i thought like the only way you become a producer is by learning how to produce call me crazy i was just like well i just got to go PA, I got to go beyond sets. That's where producers are. And I didn't realize that you, there is a path where you can go through like the agency route and you essentially can become essentially a, uh, you know, executive at a studio who typically gets a producer credit on their on movies. So you'll see all these executive producer credits on a movie or on a TV show. And you're like, who are these people? And then you go and you're like, oh, these are all the execs, the development execs at the studio at the production company and then there are the producers who are like hired to bring the thing to life right um so tv is like a whole nother beast that i i can barely like explain because it's still a mystery to me how it works truly sure. well there's there's studio there's like all oh the network of, it's just the, like the, yeah, a yeah. lot of cooks it feels like which is a miracle any television show gets made but from an independent film perspective like you know you typically have a couple of producers who are close to the filmmaker, who have the project, who develop the project. Sometimes one of those producers has the physical production experience to be the line producer. So when people hear line producer, what is a line producer? Well, it refers to the line on a budget, the lines of the budget, which corresponds to different costs and different different departments and whatnot. And typically mm -hmm. that the, the, the line, line items, item. exactly, quite, quite lit literally. Quite literally, yeah. And yeah, so, yeah. and then underneath your line producer, you typically have your UPM, which is your unit production manager, which oftentimes is a DGA position, but sometimes doesn't have to be. And so the way I think of it is that these two people constantly speak to each other. The, the line producer is the, the lowest part of the above the line and the UPM is the top of the below the line, though I hate those definitions because I think they're so like patronizing. But that's one of the ways to explain it. And often in my world of indies, those those two people are just one person wearing both hats. And so what what's good about that is that you kind of come up really learning the full scope of production, how to manage a budget, how to work with your department heads, how to work with your crew, how to problem solve on the day. And that's how I came up, you know? And so that translates very easily to commercials, right? Where you're coming in as a producer or as a supervisor, you're kind of doing the same job, just in a smaller tiny version of that. And in docs, it's very similar as well. I'm coming in usually getting hired as a line producer, but then I'm also the field producer where I'm going to the shoots. I'm there. I'm with the team problem solving on the ground. But oftentimes in my career, unless it's a project that I've developed, I, I've gotten hired as a for hire you know, physical producer. And then the moment that production ends, it's like, see you later. Hopefully I'll get tickets to Sundance when we get in type of thing. <laughs> you know, I uh, get a seat saved for me. Did you get tickets? For, I uh, did get tickets for Sylvie's Love. Yeah, I did. Sylvie's um, Love, yeah. Which premiered, premiered last year. you were year. the UPM. I was that. the UPM on that. It was a really cool experience. That's definitely the largest movie I've worked on slash produced to date. And, you know, a UPM is a producer, but 
other producers who have a capital P producer title, which tends to be the creative producer, the right hand to the filmmaker. People get very touchy about their titles and it's understandable because it carries different weight, you know, whether you're a UPM or a production supervisor or you're a capital P producer or you're an executive producer, all that stuff matters to the industry. Like to no one else does it matter. It's just incestuous and it's us that it matters to. <laughs> but that capital P producer also just happens to matter to like the Academy. Exactly. Awards, but again, our right? industry, right? Our industry wants to recognize that, but nobody else and cares. They oftentimes have price tags as well. So that's part of the reason people, and some of it is also, you know, it's credits can be mandated by like the PGA, for instance, you know, you kind of have to submit and talk about, you know, why you deserve the demarcation of PGA. All of that stuff is, is all complicated. I think it's it's really fascinating to think about it from your perspective of doing the work that Oren and I basically, you know, started doing as well. You do your branded content, you do a lot of commercials, and those jobs, I think, generationally speaking, sort of scaled up as we scaled up, you know, like the the market grew as our careers grew, basically, like it was kind of paced more or less right around the, the rate of the industry. And so it was a really good set of training wheels for your crews getting larger, right? Like at a certain point, a line producer and a UPM do need to be two different people because the machine of a television show or a, a big, big movie, you know, there's just not enough man hours to get everything done, basically, right? And and that the the dichotomy that you outlined, like that tension, I think, becomes more important. Keeping the budget in line versus keeping production moving, basically, right? But it's like perfect to have the skills and understanding of both sides of that line early on when things are smaller and then like as you level up, you get a, a even better perspective on everything. Yeah. And, and I think too, sometimes like once you get into different lanes of producing, like, you know, there is a path even in commercials where you can just freelance in commercials for a long time. Maybe one day you go in house and become a head of production and you're bidding and you're overseeing the other producers who are getting, you know, for hired for those particular projects. Um, and for me, it's like, I could have gone that path and it's typically very lucrative, but it's also very high volume of projects. And I just didn't want to get burnt out. And I always you're do. You're never on set, basically. Yeah, As you're never on set, you, right? You never see them. You never get to yeah. actually be a part of the thing. When you describe that, it just made me depressed. Can you imagine if your job was just like doing budgets and sending bids all day long and you're like, why did I get into this? It's terrible. And business? also telling producers who you like and admire and who are going to be up at or in the morning on location or whatever, like, hey, you need to cut X, Y, and Z. You know, like, like you're lucky if you're head of production as a person who really has honest-to-goodness hands-on production experience and knows how painful it can be to squeeze blood from a stone. But oftentimes, they are, they kind of come at it sideways where they maybe don't have as much production experience. Maybe they're a little bit more corporate. And so they don't understand, you know, th there's that old joke about you know why we call uh clothespins c47s yeah yeah that, that's the joke is that, like oh producers used to cut safety pins because we didn't need them so someone invented c47 so that like they'd be like oh yeah well you you can't cut the c47s you need those <laughs> yeah right it's that mentality yeah. right like whether that's true or not right but like and yeah i think across the board like working with whether it's a head of production or a creative producer who understands production that is you ultimately like 
oh, the success of anything, right? Like that's, that's typically the, the grievance is that people who've gone out up the creative producing path who are development execs, they've never been on set really. They go visit set, but they don't understand what the fuck is going on, you know? Um, and I've had, you know, through my podcast and like, having these sort of conversations off mic with people where they're like, Oh my God, I have so much anxiety because I'm here. I am with my fancy title at this fancy company, but I go to set and I have no clue what's going on. And I'm like, well, and then the line producer sees the the suit coming into town and they're also getting nervous because they think that maybe they do know what's going on and they're looking at them. So it's like, it's just this lack of transparency that our industry really is built on a lot of fear and a lack of information because a lot of people just don't know how things are supposed to go unless again you've entrenched yourself in this particular discipline of it and i think if we could i don't know be a little more transparent about stuff like that it would just create a much better industry with happier people across the board and maybe you would have a lot more autonomy with these partners that are like hey not my not my domain do you i trust you to do your job just you know what i mean instead of feeling like they need to micromanage you yeah well, I, I want to dig into kind of the other side of producing that you had mentioned earlier about, I think you said something along the lines of like, there's usually a producer or two that are close with the director that are kind of creating the project, you know, from the beginning. And I, I'm curious from your experience on your various projects, like more like the film festival type projects and documentaries and the features, like if usually you found a director that you engaged in to start working on a project or if it was usually the other way around where a director found you and kind of how those relationships form because I know a lot of our listeners and even you know people us are interested in in finding that creative partner that is down to help us figure out how to cast how to finance how to distribute and how to do those things that a lot of us like Matt and I I think know a good amount about but are not necessarily good at um and or then even a lot just of focused on right like there is that tricky thing of like knowing how to create a budget and raise financing and attach talent which is kind of like the trifecta of what like an indie producer really needs to be able to do and then also maybe have the connections to like get it into a big festival you know that's that's a lot of different jobs already yeah but know? nobody wants to focus on financing a movie like not a producer or a director or or a company right like, every once in a while there's somebody who's got that knack though like maybe they they weren't born like ah, i'm great at schmoozing i know a lot of rich people i speak rich people fluently i know how to put a together a business plan but there are people who take to it and then there are people who are like you know you know what i'm gonna be in the trenches up at four in the morning chain smoking you know, like, the, you know, that we know both of those people, right? And it's just that I think maybe in the world of production, we know a lot more chain smokers, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think that it's like, if short form is like a fling, right? Like getting in bed with, uh, with someone to go on that journey is really a marriage. And so when you're looking for a partner, if it's you looking for a producer, or a producer who's looking for that writer director, like, it really has to be a symbiotic thing first and foremost from a personality thing. Like you have to vibe on a level where you're going to have to have really hard conversations. It could take five years. Queen's Gambit took 30 years to make, you know, like there are these projects that for whatever reason are these behemoths that just take forever. And that I feel like making an independent film is, is like lightning in a bottle. And every time it's like magic that it all happens and comes together and just people even watch it. It's just like, there's so many things that can and do derail that process every time. How many projects like 
go away and remount with a different cast, you know, super bad. I mean, I was just telling some people about this earlier, you know, like Seth Rogen was going to be in that movie. He got too old for it. Like it took him too long to even, you know, so there's all kinds of different scenarios. But I think one thing is you can't really go into it with this desperation of like, I just got to find a producer. It's like I said, it's like dating. You have to find the person who kind of gets you, understands your vision, who is going to go to bat for you that when you're not in a room with them, they're going to be able to articulate why this is special like because we we are essentially sales salesmen right for you as the filmmaker we're coming and pitching cast and saying you should do this for these reasons we're telling financiers this this is why this person's great you should invest in their next in their first movie because they're on this path right so for me to sell you i have to believe in you and vice versa and if there's any tension or anything like that then from an indie perspective, like I just don't think that's going to breed a good work environment at any part of the process. And if you can't even be on the same page, like to mount the thing, production is going to suck. Like, and if you get anything magical in in the can, like it'll be a miracle again that 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 happened. So, so nowadays it's like it really is people referring me to projects and filmmakers that are maybe have a lot of shorts under their belts and, and, you know, that have gone into festivals and they're looking for someone to help make that leap to start the, the long journey to getting a feature made. So our business is very referral based. And so we we talk, I talk a lot about on my podcast and, and with anybody who will listen about how being a person of integrity is so important because you just never know how things circle back. You know, I'll have things that like, God, like from 10 years ago that a person will be like, Hey, I was a PA on this set and I remember you and I just reconnected with you on Instagram and now I see you're a producer and I have this thing. Like you just never know where things are going to come from. So I think it's really important. Has to, that example you gave any ever turned into something? Sometimes. Like the, hey, I saw you on Instagram. I see you're producing now. Can I send you Oh God. Script? I mean, not unless I remember that person really well and I look them up and I'm like, oh, wow whoa, Johnny has been really doing some shit for the past 10 years. What's he been up to for sure? But if like you move to Des Moines and, and you're not doing anything and you have like a 300 page script, like, no, I'm not interested. Sorry. Ooh, I did burn. notice there's a... Uh, Des Moines. That's <laughs> yeah. where I'm from. Really? But shout out Des Moines. Stop no, it. I, I was there, like, there was that a PA up. on um, uh, a web series that I did years ago now, maybe before the show. Did I do... Sh was Shitty Boyfriends already... Well, we, uh, I think you were doing it right when we yeah. started the show. Anyway, uh, one of the PAs on that, I was like looking through uh, like a production company of some sort, like a fancy one. I realized, oh, he's a manager there now. I was like, wow, that's crazy. I mean, it makes sense though, right? Like there is that. You're like, you is know, it awkward if I email him and ask him if he can? I uh, was nice to him. Patch. I could email him. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I remembered it, him, right? It, it, it does happen, but like, like everything else, it's got to be right place, right time, right write everything, you know. But one thing I think if you are a, a writer director who is looking to make that leap and you're going to go seek producers, I think the first thing to look at is like, who are the producers that are making the kind of work that you're like, ah, that's how I want my projects to go. Who are the producers that are getting, is it your movie that you want to get on A24's radar? Is it Neon? Like, or you want to be part of the streamers? Who are those names you see all the time? Look up those people, see what they're doing, find a way to get yourself to them. But when you do pitch them, think about when you are cold pitched anything, it's like, if you don't know somebody, it, it's a yeah, lot because we're all so busy, right? And I'm not saying... Yeah, I, you know what? Let's talk through that a little bit more because I, 
I, I like the mentality behind that, but I wonder if, if thinking about it a little bit more, I feel like there's maybe a different route actually, right? Like, because, and hear me out, but not to be adversarial, but I think that the challenge that people have is like, you look at Palm Springs as a perfect example. That's the easy example, right? You're like, oh man, my movie is funny and weird. And wouldn't it be great if the Lonely Island made my movie, right? And like, because the indie world, the shining stars are so apparent, but that that is the teeny tiny tip of the iceberg and everything else is like a lot harder to kind of parse, right? The idea of like someone who doesn't have a, a like a rock solid in at Lonely Island, it's basically a non-existent chance, right? You know? Would you agree? I would agree, right, like, but but I'm not saying go after the Lonely Island producers. I'm saying look at the people who made that movie. Look at the other producers whose names you don't recognize and see how, like, to connect the dots of how that project all came together, which is sometimes hard to do, right? I, I guess I guess that maybe what I'm suggesting is that I think that is right, but that you should be honest with yourself about the size of your film and maybe and scale down to the smaller movie that would be a lot harder maybe to that wouldn't be top of mind and look at who made that film rather than the the easy examples i think can be a little misleading i think is what i'm getting at yeah i I could see that but i guess what i mean by that is is make the the work for the producer whoever you're pitching your project to make it obvious what is the path forward right so if i'm getting your script in your deck like that shit doesn't need to be good. It needs to be exceptional to stand apart, especially if all you have are some shorts or maybe you haven't even gotten some narrative work under your belt. And I'm talking specifically about people who want to make that leap into features, right? Like, so when I get something, I'm like, whoa, like clearly this filmmaker has put a lot of thought into this. And a great example that I'll use is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Um, So Joe Talbot, you know, he had done a short film he, he was really brilliant with what he did is he wrote a short that was essentially a story that the, the, the characters tell each other at the very opening of his feature film. So it wasn't a short that was a part of the film. It was a completely tangential thing, but it was really effective. And you see these three characters, but you don't spend time with the characters. They go into the story, the shorts about that story. And when it came time for him to write the feature, he had such an incredible interactive deck where whether or not like you, you wanted to make this movie. Like I still remember this deck till this day. And I look at a lot of stuff and eventually plan B ended up making it a 24 sold it hard movie to make. I know the producers of that film, it was the sub million, 1 million. It was not an easy, you know, cush like dream job, sure. but he the, got his the Kickstarter, I think is still up even, you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. You know, but like, it showed such a clear vision and such a clear promise that even if he had got cold emailed that to any producer, I would have been like, I don't know who this guy is, but I want to meet him. Maybe I'm not the right producer, but I think these other people may be the right person, but you're coming to me with something really clear, really polished that I can actually, what what were the materials he sent? Sorry to interrupt, but he never sent them to me, but I actually interviewed the producer Kalia Neal at the time on my podcast. This is how long ago I started that because she had just, she was still putting the finishing touches on that project. And she shared this with me when I was preparing for her interview. And I was like, Kalia, like, this is amazing. Like, whose idea was this? And she's like, that was all Joe. He came to me with this. He hired a web at the time, like three years ago, it was a little more less like integrated, but he had hired a web designer and he made this interactive deck as you were reading the deck. 
the characters appeared and the costume design. And it's literally, I watched the movie three years later and I still remember the deck and it was exactly his vision in film form. It's, it's incredible. And maybe he's a rarity. I don't know, but, but those are the and things. Was it like the whole, sorry. So, no. Sorry, yeah. I, Oren's I, like, I, tell me more about this. I'm deck. All, honestly <laughs> just asking because I'm, yeah. I'm always, to me, one of the biggest things that I get out of this show is like learning how different people communicate their ideas for projects, you know, and get projects off the ground. And the sound, I've never heard of this, like sending like an interactive treatment, it sounds like, right? Yeah. Um, why not? So is it, is it like a summary of the whole movie kind of? Kind of. It it's, it's, yeah. It's like if all I had was the deck and I'm getting, I think of it very similarly to like a pre pro book for a, <laughs> for a commercial, but way more interesting, you know, where it's like, here's here's the story here's kind of who i am the story can be just like a log line or they can have it broken down into telling you the summary of the story within the deck as you're sort of scrolling through and the characters appear it can be anything that's the thing there are no rules you just want to make sure that whatever you're presenting is it it's somehow like speaks to your artistic vision you know and i've had another thing people have been doing recently is they'll take their script say they have an actor friend or an actor who's on board as an EP, they'll do a Zoom with the filmmakers and that actor that they've pre-recorded talking about why that actor or that EP is like passionate about the story, just like a quick 10, 15 minute presentation of this script and this project and why they think it's awesome. And they'll send that along to financiers. Why not? I mean, does this actor need to be famous? No, not is necessarily. But premise? if it's someone that like moves the needle. But if it was say Margot Robbie and... Caitlin Dever, that would right. be right. Like, sure, but like, <laughs> you'd be surprised that even with sure. heavy hitters, it's still hard to get things made depending on what the thing is, right? Like, there's not a one size fits all. And what's interesting is I had uh, Michelle Purple, who is Jessica Beale's producing partner on my show, uh, like last year, and she was saying that even for them, you know, even having Jessica Beale's name, it's not like the the floodgates open with opportunities. She still has to pitch her ass off. She still has to like go to bat and, and, and gets more chances to bat for sure. Cause she's Jessica Beale, but it doesn't mean that she gets a green light every time, you know, the, the further up you go, the less oxygen there is, it seems. And so it's not, it doesn't really ever get that much easier not to discourage anybody. It's just the reality that I've been confronted with myself. Yeah. You know? I love that. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I feel like that sentiment, which is a hundred percent right on. And I haven't heard phrased that way. I love it so much, but I, I think that some people can be discouraged by that. But I find that just having the starkness spelled out is a little bit of a relief, right? It's not me. It's not my idea. It's not like what whatever those external circumstances are. It's hard for everyone. So all your only choice is be the best. And that's it. And the best can change. It's like he brought up Queen's Gambit as this project, right, that no one wanted to make for so many years. And then it's like the number one show on TV. Things that no one wants to make now, you know, people might want to make. There's there's years. a very mysterious life cycle to things that I don't think even the people who claim to be super like knowledgeable of our business know why. Because you're constantly 
planning for a future that doesn't exist based off of metrics that aren't really real or quantifiable, especially nowadays. Like who's going to say what theatrical is going to look like in three years or on a Memorial Day weekend? We haven't had like data to back that up. And you're making something now that is going to maybe take a year to two until it's in front of audiences who can predict audience taste. It's it's literally impossible. So all you have yeah. is your intuition. My, they're never going to find a vaccine uh, feature film. Is, uh, <laughs> Ooh, not, sign me up. Not doing so well. Lauren, do yeah. you have a deck on that? I'd love to take a look. Oh my God. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, think, I think all you have is your taste. And uh, I know that's like, ugh, everybody says that. It's so annoying, but it's true. Like, your taste for the kinds of stories you that you want to tell. You don't have to want to be like a deep, dark, gritty indie filmmaker. You can want to do genre films and that's perfectly awesome too. We need that, you know? So then get really specific. Like who are the five companies that are doing the kinds of genre films you want to work with one day? Who are the people at those companies? Identify those people, find the people that are underneath those people, befriend those people somehow. It's a long game, but it works. I'm living proof of that. Like every single connection I've made, every single person I've worked with, I have literally hustled my way into those opportunities. Like no one knocked on my door because they saw a movie I did at a festival and was like, do you want to come do this? Like I, you constantly have to remind people that you exist and you're out here and you're doing stuff, whether you're doing commercials. And so half of the grind is just like reminding people you're alive. And then the other half is like doing the work, you know, it's a lot, it's not for everybody. And I think with producing even more so because freelance independent film producers, it, we're not rich, shocker. We don't get paid until something goes into production. So if it takes years for that and I'm making a flat 50K, looks fancy on a budget, but that'll never make up for the years I've already put into that. And we'll have to continue to put in because again, I'm not with that project just for production, right? I'm gonna oversee it through post, through distribution, through all of those phases and so. Dissolving the LLC. Oh God, yeah. Four years later, five years later. That's super interesting. And also as a producer, you're almost never hired. You're only hiring people. Isn't that um, crazy? And it's, yeah. Yeah, I think of it as, I think we have probably your relationship with a director is somewhat, has some parallels like our a director's relationship with like a DP. Like I feel like I have worked with all these DPs. I get them so many jobs and they never get me any jobs. No, nobody um, gets me a job. Although sometimes yeah, so you get, you know, I've had like DPs recommend, like when I started out and I was uh, the first documentary, first project I produced was a feature length doc called Autism in Love, which was like what opened up a lot of doors for me years later. But the DP of that, Scott Ufelder, so he like knew a production company and was gave him my name to bring me on as a coordinator. And they, they, they interviewed me, you know, so like you never know who can like open little doors for you. And that door helped me understand how to work within a production team because up until that point I was doing it all alone like completely had no clue what I was doing but you know just figuring it out so you highlight something else that I a little jealous of in that producers get a, there's a mentorship to it right like there's a ladder that you can kind of climb up and you're right you have to kind of like jump in but like there is you can be underneath people when you're younger and earlier on like you can coordinate for somebody and things like that and so it's like there's someone there to show you the ropes which i think a camera department had a lot of other departments have it directing for whatever i mean because there's just one of us like now i think that people are getting a lot better about shadowing and like building out like you know fellowships and things like that but for a long time it was just like 
well, I guess I'll write a web series and figure it out eventually, you know? I feel like in television, it seems like there's more of that because your director's kind of stepping into like a blueprint that someone else has set. And there's usually, I've learned that there's a producing director, which is a person that kind of helps all the directors kind of do their week or whatever on the show. But yeah, with features, you're just... It's think about it. It's a huge responsibility. You're just jumping into the deep end of the pool and you kind of have no one but your producers and maybe your department head to be like, I'm completely out of my element. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Um, so you're right to that extent that, that it is, uh, there's a little less mentorship there, but with producing as well. I mean, I think someone who coordinates or PMs, it's a very specific skill set, right? To run a production and no paperwork than it is to produce and and half of it really, or a majority is just dealing with egos and personalities and helping people navigate emotional challenges. You really are a therapist most of the time. And I think that's a different skill set. So without a doubt. Yeah. 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 And and that's like not even that's ignoring financing or the the Hollywood or the legal side of it. Like there's all contracts and all sorts of other stuff. Yeah, again, the higher up you get, the the more hats you have. But I'd venture to say that dealing with the emotional bullshit of it all is harder than anything because seriously, like I think all of the hard skills, like you can learn, like you can learn contracts and deal with unions. You can learn financing structures, distribution models. All of that stuff is easy compared to navigating challenges with a person, with a human, and then having that times 300 if you're dealing, if you're, you know, dealing with a crew, like it's, it can be a lot. And what one of the things that I highlight a lot on my podcast is that a lot of these kinds of producers typically don't get an outlet to release that stress. Like there's no one coming to them being like, Oh my God, Carolina, like who did you not have to fire today? Like it's a lot. Right. And so I think to not burn out, to not become a cynical, bitter asshole, the way that you have to sustain your own soul and like fill your own energetic well so that you can, show up as the best version of you for whether it's a team of 10 or a hundred or whatever, like you have to do that sometimes for multiple projects, not just the thing that you're on. It's like you have a lot of different babies, you know, and you just, it can just be really intense. On the topic of personalities and things, how much when you are attaching yourself to a project or decide to develop something or try to finance something or work on something, how much does the filmmaker matter versus the project? 90% the filmmaker. I've learned that uh, there can be a lot of things that are shiny and look really good on paper. But if the journey of making that thing is literally hell, like I'm not interested. So the shiny thing is the movie, not the person in this case. The, could be the person. It could, yeah, yeah. yeah, it could be like I did a movie that I will not name, obviously, that had you know a very well-known person directing it who wrote it and a very impressive cast. And it was one of the first things I line produced totally on my own. And it was big, scary leap. And I knew it was going to be hard, but I knew there were necessary stripes that I needed to earn to get to the other side, you know, but it took me six months to bounce back from that experience because it was so hard dealing with all those people was so insane. And I got like good skills out of it, but I vowed that I would never go down that journey again with someone just because it was like really good for my resume, you know, like, so it can be such a long, long like road. So I want to do good things with good people. The only thing we can control is the journey. And so I want that to be the best it can be because if the project turns out amazing, if it goes to a festival, if it becomes the next get out, like awesome. 
very few people can actually predict that. So because none of us know the outcome, we don't have a crystal ball, then I just want to be able to look back on the career I've built and say, yeah, like maybe I wasn't the best here and there, but generally I was a good person. I got to do cool things with some good people and maybe I got lucky enough to make good money and win some awards along the way and actually teach others how to also be a person of integrity and that you can get where you're going without having to step on people to get there. I truly believe that and I am living proof of that. And I think the more that you, not to get woo-woo, but like the more that you project that, you attract those people, the more that we breed this sense of like, that doesn't have to be a certain way. Like we are a very creative industry. We're constantly shifting and pivoting. I mean, look at how fast we were able to shift during the pandemic to be able to ramp up production. You know, when we want to, we can, we can problem solve real quick. We are all about thriving in chaos, this industry. So I refuse to believe that it has to be that way. I just refuse. Right. I think it's like a good lesson because you see a lot of filmmakers, new, new filmmakers and writers and stuff saying like, I got this amazing idea. Here's the log line. Like, are you interested in this? Can I send you the script? This is a, and it's like, I, I don't, I've never heard of a project that just comes to life from like a log line or from a, this. It's much more likely to come from, you know, this, and the story we've heard a lot of times is like, you know, we really wanted to work together on something and we came up with a project to work on together because we were fans of each other, you know? And I think it, it's hard for new filmmakers to figure out how to forge those relationships with people that they can come to with a project and say, hey, I had this idea for this thing. When do you think maybe we can work on it together? But I think the longer you work in this business, the more you kind of learn what you just said is just it's like the it's about the people so much more than the projects. Yeah. And I think you have yeah. to go through the years where you do meet some shitty people to find the good people. I think the longevity, the resilience of being here as long as you get you, you it's it's really ultimately what it sometimes I feel like our industry is like this labyrinth right and it's like all these secret portals and if you are able to keep at it long enough and you get through and you get to the other side the people that are on the inside go oh shit like you got in all right like you could stay you clearly really wanted this you know what I'm saying but the people that give it give up like it's just and it's hard I don't fault them like I definitely had the first three to four years of my journey was riddled with a bunch of people and, and collaborations and things that never went anywhere. And just, I wouldn't say it a waste of time, but there, I have nothing to show for, but they were important lessons. Like I was saying, and trusting your instinct and understanding like what you want out of a dynamic with someone, if you are collaborating with them, what are you bringing to the table as well? Well, now that you've done all these different projects, commercial documentary features, are there some qualities that you look for in a director that you think are especially helpful or even mm. hurtful yeah. whether it's a project that you originated what's the opposite of a red flag what's the opposite of a white flag a green flag well no, no but that uh, would be surrender right like uh, something like a rainbow yeah like, the, like a white a gold flag hmm. yeah yeah just like oh things you look out for and things that you're you're drawn to um yeah. somebody with a really strong vision but who is open to input because if you have a vision and you're going to do it on your own then you don't need anybody else you got it all figured out right so like you you have a vision for the thing but you're bringing other people who are at the top of their game to advise you 
on maybe other ways to approach that vision in ways that maybe you didn't think of. So you're malleable with the vision, but you're still the captain of the ship. Like, you know where it's headed at all times. But if somebody says, hey, like, actually, if we just veer one degree to the left for a minute, we're going to see an incredible star, you know, yeah. whatever. What, a what's treasure a vision? island. What, yeah. yeah, you know. What does vision mean? Vision to me just just means someone who isn't wishy-washy. They know what they want and they're not egotistical about it. They just are clear in their head. Like I'm trusting you as my writer director that you have written this script and you know exactly how you're going to execute it to an extent. And I'm there as your producer to help protect that vision and to help bring it to life. So people are going to come in and say, Hey, Oren, like you always thought this had to be red, but what if it was blue and you go, huh? All right. Like, yeah, I've been set on red for a long time, but let me think that through you think it through, you go, no, you know what, actually, no, here's why it has to be red. And here's all the reasons, because if we make it blue, it's actually going to affect costumes in this way. And that's not going to work later on because of act three, like you've thought all these things through, like, you know, exactly where this is headed. So it's not that you're not, you know, you're dismissing everybody else's opinion. There could be someone that offers something a little bit different that actually enhances the red that you're going to see in act three or whatever. So it's just being really specific with with that. And oftentimes, I think with first-time filmmakers, it's it's the why. Like, why are you telling this story? Why is this important to you? Why are we going on this journey with you? What is it that you're trying to say with this film? Um, and again, this is even if you're a genre director and you're making something that can feel like it doesn't necessarily have heart or soul to it, I, I disagree. You know, I think films are... Um, the art we create is is like the ultimate act of community service. People come in it for all kinds of different reasons at all different times. So when you're approaching the work, like I think thinking about that just informs the way that you're going to approach your collaboration with all your department heads. Um, and those are the people that succeed. It's the people that come in and are like, I've been in the business. I know how to do this. Da 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 da. It, it just it doesn't breed collaboration. It's a collaborative art form. If you want to create alone, go be a painter. Like go do something else. You know. Yeah, and that that sounds that's a thing that I think that we've heard a lot from the horror stories about first time filmmakers who maybe feel have put the pressure on themselves to feel like vision equals authoritarianism, right? Like that there's no flexibility. Right, and it's easy to misconstrue clarity and forthrightness for for be, to being too rigid. Basically, are there other things that you've noticed in first-time filmmakers, for instance, that you're like, oh man, I wish someone would just tell them to lighten up about the color scheme or whatever. You know, like, are there any other nuggets or to like understand? That? Mm -hmm. to take the budget into consideration. Yeah, or, I think it's it's not trusting that, you know, oftentimes if you are lucky enough as a first-time filmmaker, you are going to get a good producer is going to surround you with other people who are more experienced than you who are going to who are there to guide you. So your DP is going to maybe have more experience in film in films, right? Versus like your commercial DP you wanted to bring to your movie that you couldn't. Your production designer, your location manager. So if if you're working with these people and they're saying, hey, like, Matt, no, we really can't do this. Or, hey, we really need to cut. Like, if your AD is saying X, Y, Z, like, there's a reason they're saying that. It's not that they're there to squash your dreams. It's because they're looking at the bigger picture. And maybe right now you're focused on this one thing. So not listening to the guidance um, is really a bummer. Like, I had a film I worked on with a first-time filmmaker, and we were like, you're going to need to cut 10 pages out of this. You can either do it now when we're in prep, or you're going to do it later in post 
whichever, or we're going to have a few days where we're just not going to make our days and you're going to have to cut this on the day and we're just wasting money because then you cast the actor, they went through fitting. So we're, we're making, we're making, and we're giving you the call to make, but we're advising you that this is, this is the call that you should make and here's why, and here's how you do it in a way that doesn't really impact xyz in the story and this person put their foot down and they were like no absolutely this scene is crucial to the story it's super important well then you get to the post of course that scene's not in the movie because it was never important to begin with you know and you have seasoned people telling you that and you don't want to listen to it so it's like picking your battles you know you have to really understand what is it that you're fighting for and i i do think it's such a hard thing to teach because there are some battles that i think a first-time filmmaker should fight for themselves and they shouldn't just be pushovers because everybody around them has more experience it's like well yeah but if we're telling you we want you to steer the ship it's probably for a reason so it all comes back again to having that clarity having that vision being really prepared to be able to articulate it to the people you're collaborating with that reminds me of the project Greenlight, the last season matt and i you know i know we talked about it on the podcast before but it was literally like four years ago matt and i disagreed about this but the director there really insisted on shooting on 35 millimeter film you're talking about yeah yeah the guy who won right yeah yeah when everyone said like dude just shoot digital it'll be so much cheaper you can shoot so much more stuff Orin's just trying and to make me angry again i'm i'm still yeah, mad sorry. about this because you disagree he said, yeah yeah he mm -hmm. made a good point which he said literally it's one of the few decisions that affects every single frame of the movie uh, which I thought was a compelling re I, I didn't agree at all with him. Like if it was me, I would never shoot on 35. Like I, uh, to me, the advantages, the disadvantage far outweigh the advantages. But I thought it was interesting to see the producers on that, the executive producers on that all say, look, we wouldn't do this, but the fact that this is like your vision and you feel so strongly about it, we will give this to you. Just know it's going to cost you two shoot days. It's going to cost you this stunt. It's going to cost you this this thing and I always really respected that filmmaker for being so convicted having such a strong you know quote-unquote vision mm -hmm. Matt always just saw it as a dumb decision <laughs> why yeah uh, well I, I because and I think they can both be true you know yeah yeah for sure I, I think it there's something really wonderful about the poetry of saying it affects every single frame of the film and that is technically true if the look of the film was somehow impossible to get on the Alexa, I think it would be a different conversation. But it, it frankly, it looks digital. Like it, I wouldn't have thought it was thirty-five, and that's that, that's not. I don't need to pick on that movie one way or the other. Like, but what was rough in that season was that he really, really thought that there was a like a big car crash was important, right? And budget ended up shrinking that stunt into something where it wasn't impactful in the story. And I just was like, oh, man, if you'd shot Alexa, you could put literally $100,000, spread that out into the movie, and then still have like, you know, $50,000 to make this very important, basically inciting incident into your second act really impactful and get your movie, give it the turbocharge it needs. That, to me on a story level is much more important than a frankly unnoticeable aesthetic level, right? So that's, that's the, the nature of just kind of horse trading, basically. Do I want movies to look great? Of course, and that's important. But like to me, story is going to trump that in most circumstances. Right. And so I think in that scenario, 
having a producer who like understands that and is actually on the same page about what your priorities are as a director is really important because there's different, you know, there's different people for all kinds of different flavors. So a different producer may be like, absolutely. The film aesthetic is more important than anything. So, and if you have a, the two people butting heads, like that's going to be a really hard, uh, challenge there to navigate. Yeah. N- not to make it a, a project green light recap, but, uh, <laughs> the, what ended up, ha- what ha- happened in that episode is that the producer was like, no, that's insane. We're not going to shoot film on this. Yeah. Scene. It was Effie, like, right? Effie Brown. It was, yeah. 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 Uh, and then the director railroaded her, went direct to the executive producers ben affleck and uh, yeah. damon and ben affleck was like well yeah i like to shoot on film we'll give you the money and i just was like boy talk about stabbing your direct your producer it, in it, here's my question right? is where's that guy today is he still working <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what i'm saying like yeah. effie's still working yeah, sure. she's running game changer what's he up to so i feel yeah, like yeah, yeah I, again like relationships well, he made a bad movie he made a- if the movie was really great it yeah we it would change that whole fight. And that that's, it's like what you said about never being able to predict whether a movie is going to be good or not, you know, because if the movie is good and it was hell to get there, people might like, you know, excuse that hell. Oh yeah. Uh, it would have been a fun story for a podcast, you know. right? Like how crazy, <laughs> right. but yeah, it's all yeah, about yeah, context, yeah. but because it but turned out crappy, not it's, good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I also think like he could have made a terrible movie, but made good relationships along the way. And and people would have been like, oh, you know what? Like maybe it was the pressures of this this program. Like, let's give you another shot, you know, especially as a white man, to be honest. Like he could have gotten another shot way more easily than if it would have been a person of color in his shoes. And so, um, I, I, yeah, I think to circumvent someone who's supposed to be your right hand, who's supposed to be guiding you and going to mommy and daddy is a little like not a good look and i would never recommend anyone do that you know yeah yeah especially you know it they were still in pre-production too right? yeah so like yeah, yeah. going back to your point of like you know it being both a marathon and also it being relationship based like that's a pretty big betrayal early on kind of i think the biggest that a director could have on a producer right like going around somebody it's just like it it's such a betrayal that like it's really hard to trust one another and to like make a movie with a person you don't trust right and and like pretty rough it's so it's so rough and i just think about what what is then in the best interest of effie in that scenario to really fight for this guy when he's like i need another hour it's like no we're pulling the plug like you know and that's when producers get the bad rep of being the no man of being the people who are just there to squash the creative dreams it's like well, what, what happened in the beginning to set that up? Because most producers, most people who get in our business, whether they end up as a gaffer, you know, they they are here because they love stories. They want to be a part of bringing this to life on some level. We're all looking for the same thing. We just find that we have different skills that complement, you know, our talents a little better and we want to contribute that to the process. And so, yeah, that's, that's what I would say. That's a really good example of, of what not to do. I think, but yeah, and, and I think for me, it's like having had exper- not similar experiences, but close enough. It's like, I don't ever want to work with those kinds of people again, because the work is thankless. We rarely make enough money to really make it like financially worth it. And the the truth is when you're an independent producer, you're plugged into the matrix 24 seven. Like I don't have weekends. If there's a locations problem, if there's an actor who needs a script across town, I have to be the one to do it. And so you're constantly 
worried about this thing, even if you're just hired for the production period, it's your responsibility to make sure everything works. And so, and I don't share that because I need people to like hear the sob story, but just when other people are getting to have a weekend, we are there worried, making sure everything is going to be right so that my filmmaker can step on set, my actors can step on set on a Monday and it's all going to be fine and nobody's the wiser. And so, so there's a lot of stuff that's being done behind the scenes that I think a lot of people don't know about, frankly, oftentimes. Um, and so that's what, that's what makes it so soul wrenching when you have an experience like that, where somebody maybe goes behind your back and, and, um, mm -hmm. is, is shitty. Stabs it. Stabs yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I want to shift gears real quick, actually, because I think, you know, all this conversation has made me think a lot about, you know, there's a lot of conversation currently about the sustainability of an independent filmmaker or independent producer's career, right? And I know, like, uh, like Rebecca Green is a big, big advocate of, like, making sure that that's transparent, that people understand, you know, you, you made the, the comment about, like, oh, making $50,000 on a movie, but that that you know, even if that was like an annual salary and it's probably you're working on this movie for much longer than a year, ultimately, that's not enough to live in Los Angeles, right? Like that's a rough amount of money, but it sounds like you have really managed to find a way to combine your love of independent film along with these shorter term projects. Do you feel like the model of what it is to be a freelance slash independent producer has evolved into something where you're sort of required to juggle projects back and forth a little bit for the cash and a little bit for the reels. Yeah, I think so. I, I would love to live in a world where we don't have to be constantly in the, in the rat race so we can kind of get off the hamster wheel a little bit and rest. But sometimes it's like you finish an independent film and it's an incredibly rewarding experience, but you got to get money in the bank, you know, cause you're making decent amount, but not enough to, like you said, if that's all the, the only job you had all year, it wouldn't be enough for you to work. So, so commercials really supplement that because they tend to pay more in our shorter sprints and whatnot. Um, but I would, I wish there was a way that it could become a little more sustainable and that, you know, independent producers could be recognized for all the teeing up they do of filmmakers who then go on to maybe win Sundance and then the studios come calling and they get to be you know, magic carpet ride into the next big project where they're going to make millions. And then the Indian producers like, bye and looking for their, another first time filmmaker. Um, and I, I think it sucks to sort of like strip someone of their passion for why they got into this in the first place, because they cannot sustain that lifestyle for themselves. And I think Rebecca Green and dear producer, she's done a really wonderful job at really having an army of producers who offer a very honest look into what it means to be independent, what it means to freelance and this thing where it's like you, even with Rebecca, I remember, you know, I think she mentioned that one of the movies she had done had done super well in the box office yet she never saw a dime of the back end. And that happens a lot of times with sort of creative financials on the back end of stuff. And you're like, how is this possible? Like, I don't understand, you know? Um, yet the industry's looking at people like her going, Whoa, she must be rolling the dough. She made all this money. She's roll. There's this perception thing that it does not really match reality. And so I hope that with everything that's happened last year with the pandemic and the black lives matter movement, that there's a new light being sh shined on all of these things of like, we need these people. We need their energy. We need their passion. Um, we need their eye to continue to bring a lot of interesting, diverse voices into the industry. And I don't want them to go away. So how do we keep them here? Keep them happy. Keep them 
feeling like they can do this well into their 60s because right now you yeah. can't keep them paid yeah you can't you know yeah, there's yeah. no health insurance like there's all of these like real adult <laughs> things like sure yeah we don't we don't have yeah, that you barely need a bank account you know <laughs> yeah yeah it's like a 401k what is that like yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know so we should start like a film freelance film worker investment fund where you can like if you ever make a little have a good year you put some money in it and it somehow you know saved for your retirement or something i guess that's like a 401k the, or there's these are like yeah groups but that I, do yeah that. it's and then we have to teach people that they should actually save money because sometimes all the projects you're getting when you're when you're 30 are not the same projects you're getting when you're 50 you know that's right and i think on that note like i think it's super important that one of the ways I've been able to sustain myself as a freelance film producer is through the commercial work I've done and making like a way a lot more money than I need for that month and saving most of it. And that got me through the pandemic last year. And so I feel grateful that I had three very fruitful years and I was, you know, mindful of my savings. I don't live like, you know, like I don't do anything. I travel, I get to have a full life, but living in Los Angeles, it's important that you learn early on that it, the industry is not going to be impressed by what, what car you drive or all this other stuff. So really put your money towards sustaining yourself so you can do this work and be in it for the long haul until hopefully you become the outlier who can make those big bucks and pass it down to the next wave of people coming up underneath you. And if you don't have health insurance, webmd.com pretty much uh, yeah that's yeah, all you need it all out on your, <laughs> yeah. on your own it turns out i have everything <laughs> <laughs> you have every every disease yeah we should probably be wrapping up soon but before we do our unpaid endorsements carolina we would love to hear a little bit about your podcast or if you can tell our audience about your podcast that would be great yeah because it's uh it's kind of like a just shoot it for producing it really is i i think i've one, I'm a big fan of what you guys do. So thank you for doing that and having this platform for for directors and for other peeps to have this community. It's so important, as you guys know, to be seen, to be heard. And I think coming up as a producer, I, I definitely have felt this frustration that there really isn't a place where you can go and learn about people's journeys. Like sometimes there are books and there are articles. A few producers get like five minutes of press during a film junket, but I've always been like, how does anybody navigate this craziness? And so um, I saw this need and I thought, well, I this isn't out there, so I'm going to create the show I wish existed when I started out. And that became Life with Kaka, which is I've now rebranded to Angle on Producers. Um, I can tell people about the Life with Kaka thing on a separate, you know, uh, don't want to take up too much time with that. But yeah, it's been a labor of love. I do it all alone and I am now entering its second year. So I definitely will be bringing on an editor to help me so I can sustain it. And what makes the show interesting, similar to how you guys approach it, is that I'm a working producer talking to other producers to understand who they are, what they do, and how they do what they do. So from, um, oh gosh, Stephanie Elaine was amazing. She produced Hustle and Flow, Dear White People. Alana Mayo, who at the time had just started running Michael B. Jordan's company. Denise Davis, who is Issa Rae's producer on Insecure. I've had like some really cool music video producers who are like career music video producers. That's all they want to do. That's what they love to do. Amazing. Maggie McLean is her name. She's just dope. Um, you know, and then I've had like, um, Erin O'Malley, who is a big television comedy TV producer. She did New Girl, um, Bless This Mess, Curb Your Enthusiasm. 
And all of these people have such different trajectories. Oh, Rachel, Rachel Winter is another interesting one. She produced Alice Byers Club, and she got her start through softcore porn in the industry. So As a producer. She's a producer. She's a Academy Award nominated producer who got her start through through porn, essentially. Through producing, pr producing porn. Producing yeah, porn. Well, she was. I see with your question. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No. She. <laughs> yeah. She was essentially like a PA, and then she went up and coordinated, and eventually produced. Yeah, <laughs> porn. <laughs> so a lot of really interesting peeps um, with all kinds of great things and wisdom to offer, way more than I can. And so, if there's anyone that has particular interest in certain disciplines who wants to learn more about television, uh, the breadth of the conversations are with independent film producers. There is not a shortage of great convos you can listen to. And so that's angleonproducers.com. And like I said, it's a labor of love. And if anybody who listens to your show does listen to it, I'd love to hear what they think. I'm always looking for, you know, thoughts and guest ideas and ways to grow the show. So, yeah. Awesome. Check it out. And it's on, it's everywhere podcasts can be found. Exactly. And also on YouTube uh, through the pandemic, I've been recording on Zoom. And so I have the videos that I also upload there if that is your fancy. I'm no Joe Rogan, but you know, it's up, it's yeah. up there. I think we are potentially the only podcast <laughs> that did not, that does not, does not record do the, ourselves. Yeah. Well, so, YouTube. but it, it makes the editing so much more complicated. Yeah. I have learned you that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like you're just tightening things up and stuff and then you have to. I mean, I, Joe Rogan is the only person who can, you know, look like complete garbage and still have a hit podcast. That's right. That's right. You know, he's he's just like a melting hot dog. Um, <laughs> a rich melting hot dog. He's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's all right. Awesome. Well, Carolina, so great to talk to you. Do you mind hanging out and uh, endorsing with us? Yeah. Unpaid endorsements. So my unpaid endorsement, I'm a little late to the party, but I think this conversation really um, reinforces my endorsement. Have you guys seen the movie Black Bear? It was like, it's an Aubrey Plaza movie. Came out a couple months ago, still like mid-pandemic. and was like a big deal for like a week or two, you know? And I think it came out of either Sundance or South By the year before. And it was on my radar, but I just kind of missed it. Anyway, I finally decided to watch it. It was a buck on Prime. And it's uh, two halves, two different stories with the same cast. A kind of a classic indie sort of setting of like a house in upstate New York with a couple famous people, probably all who... We're down to just like hang out for a few weeks together and have a good time. Um, the first one is kind of like pretty straightforward, like psychological thriller between a love triangle between the three actors. But the second one, the second half of the movie is about making an indie film, a kind of with the same characters, but Chris Abbott, who had been the, the husband who like was maybe running this Airbnb in the first half. Now he's the director of the indie film and he's, kind of playing mind games between the two actresses in the film. But what I loved about the movie is that it did such a great job of capturing the energy and camaraderie and chaos of making an indie film. Like just like the personality types and like it's a whole crew. The AD is a character, you know, people keep spilling coffee. The sound person is like eavesdropping on private conversations it made me so nostalgic for that vibe, you know, the feeling, the fun of like the last day of shooting on like a big sleepaway job, you know, like it, you, it feels like a tight knit crew. They're all kind of like around the same age, give or take. Everyone's saying like, what's your 20? They're talking into walkies and stuff. 
And so if you feel nostalgic for, you know, making a mid-budget indie and want to see that depicted on screen and also some intense psychological manipulation, um, that's the movie for you. Black Bear. I'll check it out. A dollar on Prime? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yay, producers. Now that you bring it up. <laughs> it was not my favorite movie, but but the second half, that vibe is well worth it, I would say. So you're saying if I don't like it, it's not your fault. I'm saying if you don't like the first half skip to the to the middle yeah carolina yes what is yes, your yes, yes. Uh, unpaid endorsement my unpaid endorsement is for barb and star go to vista del mar which is the Kristen wig any momo film have you guys seen it yes yeah pretty great pretty wonderful pretty wonderful yeah, my, i my, uh, my best man is in the movie oh and really the, for my the wedding. first podcast guest yeah the of first the podcast entire guest of the entire show is in the movie i've just yeah. seen it yeah. Yeah. Wait, who does he play? Movie. Um, he has a very small part. He's the guy that is like the water instructor. There's no small parts, Oren. <laughs> he just, uh, just texted me. Um, he talks about, excuse my French, the, the tit flapping that happens when you're on the banana boat. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, he kind of. Yes, 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 yes. It was an absolutely ridiculous bananas movie. And just, I think. If it wasn't for the pandemic, it never really would have been my cup of tea. I love Kristen Wiig. I'm like just crazy for anything she does. And I I just feel like they had a really good time making this movie. And it was, I find that she has such an incredible talent for humanizing characters that can very easily just be caricatures. And I found these two women so endearing. And I, I don't know women like that. I've never met, you know, like women like that, but to take them and put them in this scenario and still make it the sweet story about friendship and about finding one's happiness and one's light. Like, I don't know. I just thought it was like a really wild, wacky. It just reminded me of like Ace Ventura, you know, where it's just completely bananas out there, but there's something about that escapism that is just really fun. And, uh, this is definitely something I was needing a month ago or whenever I saw it when it came out. So that would be my unpaid endorsement was Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar on Amazon Prime. Yeah. Yeah. It's like unexpectedly crazy. It's kind of has like an Austin Powers vibe. Right? Yeah. You kind of, you thought that it, I thought it was going to be closer to Bridesmaids, which I loved also. And it is less grounded than that. It, there's some magical realism. Austin Powers, Ace Ventura, those are the exact right cops where it's like, we are not living in a reality that we recognize, but like, I'm along for the ride. But Love I appreciated it. the moments that were grounded felt real. You know, if you just were to take those scenes out of that context, they were just really well-written, well-acted scenes. And I like it when people can, when storytellers can like really infuse that, like, you know, just have those elements into such a bold, broad comedy. That's what grounds me. So, By the way, also previous guest Eric Kissack ended in that movie. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Everybody's in that movie. So I want to be in that movie now that I've been on the podcast. Is that how this works? Yeah. Come on your show, get in a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah? Okay. Such a bummer. Oren and I got cut out. Yeah. So I have a super inside baseball type of endorsement. I was on set today and, you know, I've been talking to Matt. I've kind of obsessed with this guy with the wandering DP. He has like a podcast also and a YouTube channel and he talks about lighting and you know, there's this kind of thing you realize when you're interested in cinematography and making pretty images is that like if you want to make people look good or anything look good, you need really big lights, right? And um, 
to get really big light, sometimes you get a small light and you put a really big piece of fabric, right? Like a 12 by frame or an eight by frame or something. And I've been trying to figure out the super low budget way to get this look inside my house so I can film my wife's auditions in a way that looks like a studio film. And I think I mentioned this on a podcast before I bought some like eight by frame and tried to put these. Yeah, you bought like a, a collapsible frame. Yeah, which I have not taken out of the box yet. I, I feel oh, ashamed. boy. <laughs> um, got kind of busy but today on set we had this thing I never I might have seen it before but I don't know I never thought about it before but it is the exact solution it's called the wag flag Have you guys ever heard of this thing it's made by modern you know the they make like c-stands and a bunch of other film equipment but it's you can get a four by six by or an eight by fabric it can be like a muslin a bounce a solid like let's say you need to you're filming and you're like a one you know a very small crew and you're filming in an office and you need to black out an entire window or something um you know getting floppies or duvetine or all this stuff just takes so much time and manpower if you want to tape things up this thing it's like eight feet long but it's only like six inches tall and it's this long it's kind of like a meat axe you know if you know what that is in grip gear but it has a, a baby pin on one end and it's a six inch long rectangle with fabric wrapped around it. And you just like unspool it and it becomes oh. an eight by eight foot bounce or muslin or uh, solid. But it just hangs two basically. Of them. It's like it almost like a roll. one C-stand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if so, you can get kind of this like studio level. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if studio level is the right way to describe it. But like, a, like if you're doing a, a music video or something where you have like big lights, um, and big bounces, it's something that you could actually fit into your car and go get that same look somewhere. It's just this awesome thing. It's called a WAG flag, W-A-G-F-L-A-G. Explain to me and why why is it better than just draping your muslin off of like a T-bone or something or like speed rail? Um, or am well, I misunderstanding it? Yeah, the, the it's the speed rail part. So to put set up speed rail, you need a, you need the speed rail, which is very a very heavy piece of metal which is not that inexpensive by the way these white flags are some, super cheap some dowel though you know what i mean or or just the arm of the of the c-stand yeah so i so i used to be like that guy that has like five c-stands and like the airy light kit and the kino light kit and i'd put it all on my honda accord and go shoot an interview or shoot a scene or do that thing like be like kind of a one person band you know i'd be do camera and sound and everything and and when i did that my number one thing is like how can i pack all this stuff into one case or one thing so yes you can t-bone you can get a eight foot piece of metal and like a clamp and a big boy you know a stand like high roller and all these things but this thing it's just it, it's literally like a flat six inch tall eight foot long thing it's just, that is, you're saying it's just case. more convenient but it, the image doesn't change at all so it's it's just that you're advocating like oh this is like the the most streamlined way of doing it basically it's something one human being can do by themselves very fast it's under two hundred dollars and a t-bone has its own issues there's a, usually when you t-bone something there's a stand in the middle of it it's only better in that yes it's a it's it's for small like kind of uh, nimble crews um, I just pasted a, a link to it in the in our zoom chat so you can see what it looks like but it you just fits on a c-stand and it is it's giant it's bigger than my entire wall you know well cool so carolina aside from your podcast angle on producing how else can people find you online are you on instagram or anything i am so 
at Carolina Gropa on all the things. I'm mostly on Instagram because just I can't keep up with it all. Pretty easy if you Google me. There's there's another Carolina Gropa. She lives in Argentina, but I'm the only one that is in the film business, I believe. So you should know which one I am. And I do love yeah. to connect with G-R-O-P-P-A. people. G-R-O-P-P-A. G-R-O-P-P-A, yeah. And it's angle on producers, not producing. Oh, sorry, Side angle note. on producers. All good, all and, good. And um, yeah, if you got a script, send it. She's <laughs> she's ready. She'll make your movie. <laughs> Slide into those DMs. Oh my like, gosh. I do I do get yeah. that quite a lot and it's heartbreaking. But I, the truth is it's like everything. We just I don't I barely have the bandwidth to read the stuff I'm already working on. <laughs> so like if you wanna get someone's attention with your thing, if it's exceptional and it makes me stop in my tracks and be like, I gotta look at this right now you're probably on to a good path, even if I'm not the right person for that, because the right person will like click in and be like, this is it. Yeah. So your exceptional script, send him, send him to. Exceptional materials, not just the script, but yeah, everything that you're presenting, but. Well, cool. If you'd like to show your appreciation to the podcast, just tell us you appreciate us. Email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. Uh, we're across all social media at Just Shoot It Pod. I'm on Instagram at OKaplan, and I'm on Twitter at SmiteyPyleg. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. I'm going to double down and say, go ahead and follow us on Spotify. I think that's kind of a new metric that I think is going to be valuable. Spotify is really pushing hard on the podcasting front. So I think, you know, following us there, even if you already subscribe to us elsewhere, it's a nice way to be reminded of the show. And also, I think it will help us algorithmically speaking. This episode is edited by Sarah Weirda. Thanks for all your help, Sarah. Our social media maestro is Derek Aiello. And additional producing help from uh, Ali Kornfeld. The music you're listening to is provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And that's all she wrote. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.